This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Simon Longstaff. I'm Executive Director at the Ethics Centre and co-founder of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. I'd like to welcome you all here this morning. I'd like to pay my personal respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Uh, I have kinship ties of my own up with people on Groot Island and uh, feel it important to acknowledge those whose country it is and was here at the moment. Um, if you've got your mobile phone on, can you please put it on silence? Uh, if you're going to tweet, then it's hashtag FODI. And I should mention to you that uh, this is being recorded by audio and there'll be an opportunity later on where if you want to ask a question, there'll be microphones at the other side. But before we do that, we're going to have a conversation here about a topic which I think Australians are largely unaware of, and that is the uh, growing deployment of um, arms across our region, uh, not just in China and the contest between the United States and China, which is the focus of so much of attention in the popular media, but to a much larger extent that um, we in Australia are simply not aware of. We've got a fantastic panel to talk about that. Uh, Dr Bates Gill, who's Professor of Asia-Pacific Strategic Studies with the Australian National University's Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. He has a tremendously deep experience in this area. And uh, this is Bates sitting at the far end and he'll be kicking off in a moment. I'm going to ask him to sit, do a bit of a scene setter for us. Um, Peter Harcher, who is sitting just next to me here, He's a noted Australian journalist and author, political editor and international editor for the Sydney Morning Herald. And Sharon Lee, who's associate lecturer in the Department of Security Studies and Criminology at the Macquarie University, where she works, and who's just um, winding up her own doctorate uh, within this area. So would you join with me in welcoming all of our guests? <laughs> so Bates, yeah. um, before you get going, I, I think there's a few things we'd like to do in the course of this hour. We'd like to understand exactly what the facts are, basically, in terms of what's occurring. We'd like to know what might be driving uh, this competition around arms. Uh, and we'd like to know, I think, between all of us, what Australia might do by way of response, not just by itself, but also within its region. And this will throw up a lot of things, I think, from North Korea through to alliances. But um, to get us all in the same space, uh, I wonder if you could begin, please, sure. by giving us a basic factual oversight as to what this current state happens to be. Thanks very much, Simon. I guess just a little bit of scene setting or just some, some, some data here for everyone to take a look at. Um, you know, it's definitely true that arms spending is up, uh, the procurement of weapons is up in Asia. Um, top importers of the world of weaponry are primarily here in this part of the world, India, China, Australia, also being one, Pakistan, uh, South Korea. Um, and that while defense spending globally is only rising on a relatively incremental level, about 1%, 2% per year, um, in Asia it's rising much, much faster, three to four times faster, something around 55 to 5.6% uh, just last year. So we definitely have interesting increases going on. I think that's an important thing to take into account. Now the question is, you know, do we know why? Well, there's lots of explanations for it. Um, one, I think, important is China's growing uh, power uh, and, uh, and wealth, uh, both militarily and economically, generating uncertainties here in the region. And factually speaking, uh, you know, almost a half of regional spending, regional military spending in Asia is accounted for by China alone, four times more uh, than India, five times more in spending uh, than Japan. And it's become the world's third largest arms exporter, it exports mostly uh, its domestically produced weapons abroad here in this region, and it's become uh, the third largest arms importer, primarily purchasing uh, from, from uh, Russia. These have then spurred tensions in the region, and especially amongst China's neighbors, and there's correlation, we don't know about causation, but there's certainly a correlation between these developments on the part of China and rapid increases in military spending in different parts of the region. For example, in 2015, uh, arms spending by Indonesia up 16%, up 25% uh, for the Philippines, and up about 8% for Vietnam. Again, correlation, uh, not necessarily a causation, but I think we can see that uh, China's 
emergence on the scene as a greater military power, I think, has spurred uncertainties and is in part helping us understand what's happening here in the region. But here's some interesting points I don't think many people realize. The arms trade in, the world, in Asia today, in terms of its volume and in terms of its value, is actually lower than it was at the height of the Cold War. It's also uh, uh, true that um, military spending as a percentage, military spending as a percentage of gross domestic product um, in, in Asia is also uh, relatively low and is not significantly increasing. So in other words, the um, priority which governments are placing upon military spending, upon arms procurement, remains relatively low and relatively steady between one and two or three percent amongst most Asian countries uh, today. One of the reasons, I think, for this is that the arms trade data that we can look at is not captured by domestic production. So a country like China has become a much bigger and more effective and more advanced domestic producer of weaponry, adding to its military power, but that doesn't always get picked up in the arms trade data. And one issue I think we want to try to get to today, Simon, also is outside of the conventional realm. Yeah. Militarily relevant uh, technologies in the cyberspace and in outer space, which we don't often think of as weapons necessarily, but which are becoming increasingly weaponized. Um, when you add it all up, you know, we ask, is this an arms race? Uh, if yes, so what? What does it mean for us? Yeah, uh, great. Thanks very much, Bates. Sharon, what do you think? That's the, the effects. Add a bit of colour as you see it to what you think is happening in the region. Yes, um, it's definitely one picture that we look at. And when you look at the data, often um, people automatically assume that there is lots of rising in the region, there, um, people are investing more and more into weaponry. But if you actually look at what the kind of things they are buying, that's actually the more dangerous picture of it. Because they're innovating their defence industries, they want to make indigenous um, aircraft, indigenous submarines, indigenous service combatants, and the level of sophistication of the platforms are rising quicker and quicker and quicker. And that is the more dangerous picture. It's not just the data, it's not what they're importing, but um, the fact that they're putting a political objectives on um, sophisticated technology platforms and um, exactly what they want to do with them. So that's the other side of it. Where, where do you see that most happening? I mean, one area I think we do read about in our newspapers is around the uh, submarines. Yeah. Um, it used to be that, for example, a country like Australia with a conventional fleet mm -hmm. had a clear technological superiority, mm -hmm. in large because of the combat systems from the US, and we might come back to that at the moment, about this integration mm -hmm. between Australia and the United States and what that means strategically. But I know about submarines. Where, where else do you see, are you seeing this? Um, the most significant uh, investments are actually made by um, the United States military, and that's because they're not constrained by agreements such as the INF, which... Um, um, oh, sorry, they are constrained by it, which um, um, China isn't constrained by it. So what they're doing is they're investing in platforms such as hypersonics and supersonic missiles that kind of um, aren't... Um, constrained by international treaties, um, as well as because who, they have... Who, who is the Chinese? Oh, Chinese and, um, right. So the Chinese and the... Ru the Ch well, the Russians cheat, obviously. Um, but the um, <laughs> um, Americans are constrained... Sorry, by, any Russians out there? <laughs> sorry, um, the Americans um, are constrained by certain restrictions on the kind of nuclear forces they can build. So what kind of weapons can they develop to counteract that? Because they have a global command of the commons... Um, they have to look at what kind of um, weapons um, they can develop that aren't going to be constrained by treaties, which can still fulfil global priorities, such as in the Middle East, in the Asia-Pacific, and in particular in the Western European continental theatre. So they invest in, at the moment, one of the most significant um, capabilities they're looking at are lasers, um, energy-directed weapons. Um, they're looking at what they can do in space, which is countering what the Chinese want to do in terms of anti-satellite weapons. Mm -hmm. So how do you protect all of the satellites and all of the, the technology that are floating around in space um, that the Chinese want to take down because they have a global command and control network? Because you can have a submarine, but if you don't have the logistics behind that to connect it with all the other weapons that you have, that submarine is useless. There's a, there's a very, very interesting book called Ghost Fleet, which mm. I don't know if you, some of you may have read by Peter W. Singer, not the Australian philosopher, but by an expert in military technology, 
which runs through a scenario which is now being used in war colleges in the United States in which China and the Russians have joined together using some very interesting technological tricks, all of which are actually available. So every foot thing is footnoted. And it begins by knocking out the American satellites. Um, So hence the importance. Just before I leave you, Sharon, when you think about Asia, it's various ways to define it, and Bates and Peter, where should we actually be thinking about this region? Should we be including the Soviet, uh, sorry, the Russian Far East? Um, Is as far as that, or is it what are the geographical boundaries of this area we're thinking about? Is India included? Um, Pakistan? I think um, there's a tendency to try and stretch the Asia-Pacific region, but once you stretch it, it loses a lot of the kind of potency of what is actually being done and the contested space that we're in. If you think about all the territorial disputes that are in the East China Sea down to the South China Sea, and that China is a party to many of them. The other parties that are there are also ones that are US allies and that have security cooperation um, and partnerships with the US. So you're not just talking, so it's mainly um, what I consider Asia is bounded by particularly Northeast Asia in terms of China, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and in South Korea, the most significant players here are Singapore and Vietnam. Um, India, have you got India in your mix? Not so much, because if you look at what India does, it's mainly land-based. Mm-hmm. And yes, it looks, it has um, ter- like maritime ambitions, but the majority of what they're spending on is military costs, um, sorry, personnel costs. Um, if you break down those numbers, if you break down what they're spending on, it's mainly to uh, fund their salaries. And um, in a lot of the equipment that they buy is land-based along the China border in Pakistan. Can, can, I, can I throw in on that one? Yeah. That um, it's you know we can define it according to what yeah. how we see it, but we also have to take into account what other countries say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Russia, for example, says it is a Pacific power. Uh, Putin is. Uh, putting emphasis and hardware and political and rhetorical emphasis uh, on the Pacific fleet. And we saw them come down for during G2. And we, we even saw them make a friendly little uh, a fleet visit to Australia. Um, that's right, for the first time since the Cold War. Uh, but also similarly with, with India. India is now uh, quite deliberately uh, expanding its maritime push into the Indian Ocean um, and beyond. In fact, there was a paper last week by an Australian academic suggesting that Australia and India should cooperate in a range of ways uh, in military and strategic uh, fields, including by offering India the use of the Cocos Islands uh, to Australia's north as a shared military facility. Well, they have the Andaman Islands, and if you go to India, they will never forget to remind you of their, their presence there and just how far east it is. Well, it's um, been called so a string of flowers, you know, that, mm. they're, that they're creating a string. Yeah. It's a lovely the, metaphor uh, for something horrible and military and, on, on and the deadly. Region, on the regional point, um, Simon, I think no matter how we define it, Australians, I think, should recognise, if they don't already, that what, the way I'd put it is the strategic centre of gravity of this region, however you care to define it, is getting closer to Australia. Uh, blissful isolation is no longer, if it ever was, a possibility strategically uh, for Australia. And what I mean by that is perhaps during the darkest days of the Cold War in Asia, we, we tended, I, th- I think we thought about the conflict largely in terms of Northeast Asia or mm. even Asia Pacific, which sort of means looking that way, east. And that's why this term Indo-Pacific, I think, has come into vogue and I think actually is a good strategic concept, at least for Australia, because that center of gravity is coming down into the archipelagos, into the Indian Ocean, into the South China Sea, it's closer to us here. Okay, so we've got a rough idea about what's happening. If I just summarise it, there's maybe a static amount of GDP from 1% to 3%, but these economies are growing, which means the overall expenditure is larger. Uh, I think, Sharon, you've put a very interesting point here that it's not just the fact that the total amount being spent is increasing in absolute numbers, but that what it's being spent on is significant and that nations within the region are seeking to create their own domestic capacity in higher forms of technology with more sophisticated capacity to affect the military um, environment. So that's what's happened. Fair summary? Yep. Sure. So why? Why? What's happening? Is it, I mean, I'll, I'll put it on the table. One would be rising China. Would be You could play that, but that seems to me like a pretty blunt card. Uh, but is it more sophisticated than that, Bates? Well, it... I think in certain instances, for example, Vietnam, Indonesia, um, 
course, the United States, I think, very much has got its eye very, very sharply focused on the capabilities that China is developing uh, to make life more difficult for American freedom of navigation and, and other uh, sort of once accepted uh, capabilities of the United States to operate basically with impunity off China. And it's worth shores. noticing now that the Chinese have got missile systems, um, sea to sea, ground to sea, which effectively deny large yep. amounts of yep. sea to the United States yep. that they once were able to say. American, American commanders would, would say, and they have said publicly, look, we have ways of dealing with this. But, I mean, I think um, it's, it's a fact that they, I, would, I sort of think of it as the envelope. Uh, it's out, it's th moving th out. That China has now been able to establish to, at a minimum, severely complicate <laughs> the decision-making processes, both at the political and military level of the United States, is a fact. And, and most people sort of talk about that as being pushed out to the so-called first island chain, right? Which includes Taiwan, it includes you know, the islands of the South China Sea, and pushes up, starts to bump up against um, American and allied uh, military uh, presence in this part of the world. So, so one factor is China. Um, what about the, because the, the, the temptation in Australia, again, is to think of this thing called Asia as an undifferentiated mass, but it is a, range of countries that have got very different uh, cultures, um, political systems, religious foundations and interests. So diverse, in fact, that the only common language that's used within ASEAN is English because that's the only language that can be shared. So what about tensions within the region itself, Peter? Do you well, in broad, uh, the region was a, a pretty Pacific, uh, Pacific, Pacific one. Most countries weren't interested or able to do much about increasing defence budgets. Really, let's, let's, I mean, we have to talk about the elephant in the room. The elephant is China. That's what uh, all countries are shaping their behaviours and reacting to. Uh, we all, including Australia, went through a, a number of years where everybody thought that uh, and hoped that China would be a completely benign and Pacific power. Uh, and it looked like that. Uh, things have changed and it's, we're not imagining it, we're not projecting onto China. Look at official statements and doctrine from China itself. So, for example, uh, China was, you know, the, the sort of overarching uh, maxim from China, from Deng Xiaoping, the, the former you know, supreme leader, was uh, hide your brightness, bide your time. And that was the, the, the overarching maxim that governed China's strategic behaviour for decades. Well, in 2013, Xi Jinping uh, rewrote that. Xi Jinping's replacement, that, that doctrine no longer applies. Xi Jinping said, um, it's time to uh, strive to achieve. So we've, we've, we've finished biding our time, we've finished hiding our brightness, now we're striving to achieve. Uh, Xi Jinping, before he became president of China, when he was vice president, um, when he was premier, he was uh, vice president rather, he was the chairman of the so-called small leading group that worked on China's uh, a strategy for the South China Sea. So he then carried that strategy. The strategy was formulated. Uh, it was a, all about the, the nine dash line. It was all about making a claim on the South China Sea and then expanding uh, into, the, into, into that uh, space to fill it and assert Chinese hegemony. That was the strategy. And that's in Chinese, Chinese strategy. I'm not making that up. Mm. Um, and everything that's happened, or not everything, but almost everything that's happened, has been in response to that. So um, uh, you're right, uh, every country has its own uh, concerns, its own strategies, its own uh, priorities. But overarchingly, we are all responding uh, to what China has, has started to do, and that includes the US with its pivot uh, to, to the Asia-Pacific uh, it includes, I mean, for example, Indonesia, which had no interest in any sort of conflict with China until uh, just a few months ago when the Chinese, uh, Chinese started to arrest Indonesian fishing vessels. Uh, so since then, the Indonesians uh, first announced uh, an extra, on top of their pre-existing defence budget, a 9% increase in their defence spending, ordered more military hardware. The president convened a cabinet meeting in a warship uh, in, the, in some of the, the disputed uh, regions around the Natuna Islands. And he's made very... Uh, uh, Jokowi, the president, has made very firm statements about 
resisting Chinese intrusions. So there's no way so that one can avoid making a proper connection between those changes in the investment and that incident involving China? It's, it's very specific. The, right. the, the cause and effect is very clear. Sure. No, I, I agree with Peter. I mean, the, the Chinese um, military modernisation has been going on since the 1970s. They were talking about the Near and Far Seas with Deng Xiaoping. He came up with this concept. Um, and they were really shocked in the 1990s when they saw how American modern warfare was conducted with the Gulf War, um, the bombing of the, um, the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, and then in the Taiwan Straits crisis where there were... An accidental bombing, I should say. An accidental mm -hmm. bombing. Mm -hmm. And um, the, then when the, um, the US moved to aircraft carriers in, off the Taiwan Strait, they had literally no response to that. They didn't... They, they realised they were woefully unprepared for um, the modern uh, warfare. Even though the pivot hadn't happened yet, they realised if it came to a situation where we have a contested space and we want to protect our um, interests um, and we want to have a military that is commensurate with our national prestige, with what we consider ourselves to be as a great power, then we are completely unprepared for this. We, are we do not, don't have the capabilities that the... Um, Americans have, or even the American allies have. And it's kind of, people like to say that, oh, we, you know, China reacted to the US, the US reacted to China, but there were certain kind of incidences which they're always going to modernise. Um, you know, as economic growth happens, they're always going to modernise, but it was relative to who. And of course, if you have American primacy in the region, they're going to respond to that because that's the only standard that they know. That's the only standard that we know is a, a superpower that has um, capabilities to have this kind of global command of the commons. Do you, do you think it's partly to do with the notion of prestige too, that not, as opposed to just cold-hearted oh, uh, expression of military power to secure mm. economic or other interests? Yeah, naval power has always been the, um, the prestige part. I mean, because the amount of technology that you'd have to have in a navy says something about your domestic industry, about your economic success. I mean, if you look at Thailand, they have a submarine command, no submarines. They have an aircraft carrier <laughs> that hasn't left dry dock since they, they got it. But it's this great opportunity that they can put the royal family on it to take photo opportunities and say, we have one of the only submarine commands in the world. There's only other six <laughs> countries that have submarine commands. They have, sorry, I missed that. They have no submarines? Yes, but they have a submarine command. <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's a prestige. We could have saved a lot of money in South Australia, yeah, couldn't we? Just so <laughs> <laughs> we should tell Christopher Pine to just set up a submarine command. Yeah. So it's, I'm it's sure he'd be happy just to have the stage yeah. without the hardware. So it is very much connected to prestige. It's, um, you know, otherwise, why would... I mean, if you look at the operational requirements of China, they don't need aircraft carriers because the, the, island, the way the islands are sort of... Um, uh, um, kind of located, they don't need an aircraft carrier strike group. It's, it's, they, they would do enough with just uh, some submarines and the very capable destroyers they have now. But they want this, this carrier group, and it's a very expensive enterprise. They could barely get their first carrier to work, and they want a fleet of four. Mm. And if you consider all the domestic problems that they have and all the other land requirements they have and you know, their air defence capabilities... Well, you know, no, OK, let's, let, let, let's set a China aside yeah. from that, because earlier on when we were talking before this session, mm. we were trying to canvas where we thought hotspots might be that are having an effect there. And uh, Sharon, you, you actually mentioned North Korea as something which we should be thinking about. I think that was... Oh, sorry, but was it, was it Bates? Well, I mean, it just struck me that um, we know from the newspapers, obviously, that, that North Korea's made some pretty significant advances in just the past, say, five years in terms of uh, developing a real nuclear, credible nuclear uh, threat, um, that they are probably today in a position to shoot, to successfully shoot a missile and have it detonate over Tokyo or, or Seoul or even uh, potentially places like Guam or Alaska. So in other words, we're, we're, we're moving into a strategic uh, moment in Northeast Asia, which we've never experienced up until now. We've always thought of um, you know, North Korea as a sort of blustery basket case, which it is, but now it's a blustery <coughs> basket case with a credible, nearly credible ability to deter us uh, from um, threatening existential harm to them. That's an entirely different situation, and it will start to drive how weapons procurement uh, is developed. The most recent decision, for example, by 
uh, South Korea to join with the United States to deploy terminal high-altitude mm. air defense, THAAD. Um, you know, that's directed at North Korea, but it has strategic ripple effects uh, toward China, for example, who, which believes that this new uh, uh, anti-missile system could be targeted on China's deterrent. So in that sense, I see that as a more classic example of a Cold War-style arms race of action, reaction, defense, and offense. And quite frankly, the options we have to, to, to bring an end to that race, if that's what we want to call it, uh, on the Korean Peninsula, are slim. We have, we have few and, and, and rooms for accidents, Cal miscalculations by both sides. Potentially. I mean, yeah. some people like to say, and you know, if you look at the record of the Cold War, um, maybe they're right, um, that actually um, countries that possess nuclear weapons uh, end up in this relatively stable uh, deterrent um, situation where you don't launch conventional arms against the other for fear of that escalating to this you mm. know, terrible use of nuclear weapons. You know, in that sort of Cold War logic, um, maybe this is, you know, the North Koreans' nuclear weapon is actually introducing a stabilizing, strange to say, but the question, you know, then you get into the rationality of leadership. Well, I was going to ask you about it. I mean, the, 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 the general narrative here is that North Korea and its leadership are not the most rational. Um, is that just a, a, a narrative or... I think, that's a, I think that's a media fix-up. Right. <laughs> uh, they've been entirely rational in their, in their pursuit of, uh, of, of nuclear technology, I think. Um, can, I, can I also touch on a larger thing that Bates has just really raised, which is this... So far, we've mainly been talking about capability, but if you're trying to assess threat or risk, you have to look at capability the capability of a potential rival, but also its intent. Hmm. Uh, intent is, is, is all important. Inherently, there's no, there's no harm or problem in countries building up their militaries. You'd expect nothing less of a, a great growing power, especially a great returning power like China. That's completely normal, natural, and to be expected. The question is all about what do you intend to do with that capability? Uh, and this is also the question of North Korea. What do you intend to do with your new capability? If you're standing next to a man with a gun, you want to know whether he's a police officer or he's a gang member. Same gun, same capability. The question is intent. Uh, is, is this going to be someone responsible or someone aggressive? That's what you want to know. And what's, um, what's changed in our region isn't just the capability. Uh, it's the intent. Doctrine the, the is Chinese changing. Chinese intent that you referred to before, or are you thinking further afield? Well, I'm thinking I'm thinking uh, further afield. But if you look at, I mean, the China case is the clearest. You've one. made that one so far. So China is is clear uh, because of what they've said about the mm -hmm. uh, the nine dash line and their and their claim and their intentions. Um, North Korea. Uh, well, their, their rhetorical, their, their rhetoric hasn't changed. They want to turn uh, the United States into a sea of fire, turn Seoul into a sea of fire, uh, and Sydney too, if they could reach us. But what's changed there is that, you know, it, 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 it was a sort of a source of marvel to a lot of people. You'd go to South Korea, you'd visit Seoul. Everybody seemed completely relaxed about the, the madman on the other side of the border. It's only sort of about 10 minutes by missile flying time from the DMZ to Seoul. And yet the South Koreans for decades went around completely untroubled, didn't worry at all. Ordinary people didn't worry at all about this threat, which seems to us so pressing mm. and dangerous. And the reason was, of course, that South Koreans have been living within artillery barrage range of North Korea ever since the end of the Korean War. The North Koreans never acted on it, so they, they just, it became back, a background reality. That's all changed, and it's just changed this year. And as Bates said, it was the President Park decided that uh, what had been assumed to be a, not a very serious threat was now an urgent and real threat, and Park has taken the controversial decision to sign up mm. to the US THAAD system, a missile intercept system, uh, designed to protect principally against North Korea, but also against China, and it's upset the Chinese. So, so intent has changed as well as capability. So in the absence, I think we've got an understanding now what's been happening something of what's driving it. Um, we may have missed a few things, if, add that if you want to. I want to now look at the nature of the response because it's tempting in one sense to think, well, the way that you fight fire is with fire. Mm. If they're going to have this, we'll build bigger and faster and better connected. But I'm wondering whether or not that, at the very least, has to be complemented by 
significant diplomatic efforts to try and build different kinds of alliances be better done. And I'm wondering within that what some of the recent procurement decisions made by Australia might be doing in terms of how our region sees us as part of a collective response to some of these challenges. Sharon, I think um, we invoked Christopher Pine earlier on. You, you were expressing some views, well, I think I am right in this case, about how what we decided to do in terms of buying French technology mm -hmm. might be seen here. Um, I think it was quite a missed opportunity to not have purchased the Japanese Soru class um, because there was preference given to those submarines based on an idea of trilateral coordination between Japan, Australia and America. The preference of the technology first in a Soru class compared to a Scorpion is quite different. It's like comparing apples and oranges. Um, as well as, I'm not sure if many people saw, there's also issues of security behind the release of all of the um, classified oh, documents. Oh, the French, the French plans, yeah. Yes, um, of the Indians. So there was that concern which the Americans had flagged earlier as well. Um, and of course, it was shown last week. Um, so the, um, Abbott actually pushed, and it was probably one of his only good decisions, he actually pushed um, the Japanese to, and the Americans to change their um, laws about arms exports. And they wanted this technology, but then of course the change in government happened and Turnbull decided on the Scorpions. But they missed a really critical opportunity because once you have that kind of military to military cooperation, a lot of other easier things happen in terms of transparency, in terms of, if you think about how contested the region would be um, in terms of um, uh, in terms of submarines and surface combatants and all of this technology that people put in. Um, it, if you have similar technology, the ability to do joint warfighting interoperability it becomes a lot easier. And that then sets the stage for other forms of cooperation and diplomacy. And, you know, it actually other makes all the other players less scared as well. Because then if you have the submarines that are jointly developed by Japan and Australia um, and the US, people's like, okay, so that's that purpose, that, that kind of um, sinister intent of only having a submarine that's for your national interest um, that can be misinterpreted um, as an, something that is targeted to another country is softened. Um, the, the Japanese were clearly disappointed by mm. the decision. I yes. think they may have felt that they were put in a position where it was even embarrassing mm. to have declared yes. what they had. The Japanese also have a very ambiguous relationship with the rest of Southeast Asia, though, where even to this day there's nervousness amongst mm. people down into Indonesia and Malaysia about having the Japanese fleet sail back down. Yes. Um, they've offered time and time again to help protect against mm. piracy. Mm. Those offers have been rebuffed, rebuffed because of the memories still mm. from what occurred during the Second World War. So I'm wondering, is there something else in this about the decision of Australia that may have actually been um, conditioned in part by that understanding? Uh, definitely. I think there still is that um, fear of the kind of Japanese greater co-prosperity sphere that, um, you know, what they tried to do in World War II. Um, but interestingly, a lot of Southeast Asian nations, even though they're still quite scared of the Japanese intent, they buy a lot of their technology. So most of the patrol and coastal combatants that are sailing around the South China Sea actually were funded by the Japanese, and that's actually Japanese technology. So there's quite an interesting dynamic, even though there's this kind of mutual suspicion that goes on, they still have the best, um, they're still one of the top um, exporters of certain defence technologies in the region, and they're part of this cycle that of trying, of um, this um, dangerous kind of capabilities that have been um, just um, put in the region and making it more contested space. Bates, do you, how do you see the diplomatic opportunities for Australia here, in, particularly in relation to the ASEAN nations, which individually are not particularly strong, although that we see how they're expanding, but collectively might be a useful um, political, strategic and even moral block against the aspirations of either the US or China? Well, what's happening, I think, is interesting in the region is um, we're, we're evolving from you know, what had once been a sort of... Uh, you know, America. You know, the, the American bilateral alliances providing you know the sort of the bulk of the of the security presence in the region to something that's becoming far more diversified. And this gets to your, your earlier point about you know diplomatic and political or political military forms of cooperation that are now emerging. Uh, you know, quadrilateral, trilateral, larger. Um, um, relationships which aren't formal treaties at all, yeah. but are looking for diplomatic and political and yes, military related forms of cooperation 
And this, again, this is largely in response to China's uh, rise, but I should add that some of these forms of cooperation do include China, which is a good thing. Um, so that, that's the overall context that's happening. We're, 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 we're leaving the bilateral security alliance system and moving into something that's much more diffuse and, and, and multilateral. Um, but we're not there yet, it's, and it's certainly nothing formalized. And for Australia, you know, in, in, uh, in, with its ASEAN neighbors, uh, I think that's something that ought to be explored very, very, uh, very ambitiously. Um, as you know, though, uh, Australia has its own sets of challenges and problems with some of the really important uh, ASEAN neighbors, like Indonesia. Um, and so that has to be done very softly, I would, I would say. Um, maybe the first step in that direction might be um, with other allies in the region. So, for example, Australian, Philippine, U.S. forms of cooperation, which do exist, um, whether that's in helping the Philippines deal with their own internal challenges, or through the development of uh, maritime uh, surveillance and, and domain awareness cooperation, um, not through the direct export of, of Australian equipment, although that happens, um, but more in the way of understanding logistically and operationally how that can get done in a way that helps the Philippines understand their maritime domain. Can I pitch in a couple yeah. of thoughts um, on ASEAN in particular? Uh, the, the, the big um, counter diplomatically to China's uh, assertions of territorial ownership and control in the South China Sea was supposed to be ASEAN. Uh, China had committed to uh, negotiating and signing mm. with ASEAN a code of conduct that would control everybody's behaviour in it's the region. It's still on the table, I think, isn't it? That's the problem. Mm. They, they agreed to do this 10 years ago. The negotiations have proceeded, uh, essentially they haven't proceeded, and the Chinese foreign minister uh, uh, this year said we are in no rush. Um, and of course they're in no rush because to negotiate with ASEAN uh, on block means that it's one country against ten. China's uh, preference is to deal with each country uh, you know, on a hub-and-spoke system mm. because China's bigger than any one of the other ten ASEAN members. So first, the collective uh, approach of ASEAN has failed. Second, China has successfully split ASEAN. So uh, Laos and Cambodia uh, now dissent from any ASEAN statement that seeks to criticise or control or even moderately chide Chinese behaviour. So in the last couple of years, for the first time in the history of ASEAN, uh, foreign ministers of, ASEAN's, uh, of the ASEAN countries meet and are unable to issue a joint communique. communique. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's new, and the Chinese have successfully split off Cambodia and Laos, their two client states, from the rest of ASEAN. So we, we, have, to have, uh, we have to be realistic. ASEAN is not going to solve, uh, solve any of our, well, any of our real, that, real problems. A few years ago, Australia, um, somewhat clumsily, um, proposed through back channels a new set of arrangements which might involve Australia, Indonesia, as a large ASEAN power. I forget, it may have been Singapore as well, the US in some kind of um, relationship. And it caused, it just burnt up. It was, was this it, the Rudd thing? Yeah, yep. yeah, remember that. It, it, was, it was how it was done, but also it prompted all ASEAN's fears about being split further. But it seems to me that if ASEAN is not effective and they can't, well, I mean, I'm wondering what are the other alternatives? Is it something like that? Well, the, the Done strength, better or? The strength and weakness of ASEAN, as Peter said, is its um, intention to be uh, unified and have a consensus-based approach. So I, I quite agree with, with Peter. The, the, any effort to try and shape Chinese thinking about its strategic approach to the region isn't going to happen on the basis of an ASEAN-centric, consensus-based uh, diplomatic effort. Rather, I think, um, there is some um, openness within ASEAN, individual ASEAN countries uh, who would see value in enlarging the political, diplomatic and military related um, relationships with other outside powers. So I think, in other words, choose your partners very wisely uh, and not try to go through the ASEAN door, although you do have to play that game, um, but realistically speaking, what we're talking about is op trying to open up relationships with countries like Vietnam hmm. or Singapore, or we already have relationships with them, but to expand them and think more carefully about what kind of partners they can be. 
And, and Simon, your point is, it, this is absolutely the time to be asking that question, what are the alternatives? And one of the things that's really got everybody thinking is Donald Trump. Um, because about lots of things. <laughs> he's got people thinking lots of things, most of them unprintable. Yeah. Um, not, uh, not in a family newspaper anyway. Um, but he has said that he's prepared to walk away from the uh, US treaty alliance with South Korea. He's prepared to walk away from the US treaty alliance with Japan, NATO. unless those countries pay more towards the cost of their alliances, and possibly even NATO, although he retracted on NATO. Do you think he knows about ANZUS? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe we'll go under the radar, he won't, he yeah. doesn't, doesn't even... Re re <laughs> well, um, there's been a furtive Australian diplomatic effort to find out what he thinks about ANZUS <laughs> and what he thinks about Australia. And what's come back is, th and this is all, um, none of this is a, a, a official and none of this has been op openly stated, but there have been contacts between Australian diplomats, uh, Joe Hockey and uh, some of the, the people around uh, Trump. The message that comes back is that Donald loves Australia. Um, <laughs> And this is, and you, and you will hear this being circulated, in, is this circulated inside Canberra as a sort of reassurance? In other words, in other words, don't worry, whoever wins the US election, the alliance is fine. Uh, but but that, it, let's, just, let's accept for a moment that that may be true. If the same US president, if he should win, um, and he's unlikely to, but hell, it's a two-horse race. Hmm. The other horse has got to have some chance, right? Even though the odds are against him, it's still a distinct possibility. Um, and in the event that he should win, if he in fact starts to draw down forward deployed US forces from Japan and from Korea, the credibility of the entire US alliance system erodes immediately, and that includes uh, our alliance with the US. So even if Trump doesn't win, right throughout the Asia Pacific, right throughout the world, capitals are now rethinking and recalibrating. Can we rely on the US long term? What can we rely on them for? What alternatives are there? What arrangements do we now ha have to start thinking about making? In many cases, Japan, Korea, Australia, for the first time uh, in 50 years or more. Well, it's a very profound question, but it's because our capability as a nation, a military, is largely dependent upon yep. um, the United States. Our Five Eyes intelligence sharing, our combat systems and their integration, even um, our ability to project power. Um, are we, I mean, it's been a great strength of Australia to have that alliance. Is it a time to start thinking about greater interdependence or greater independence in that, in that situation? Well, the implications of, of Peter's analysis there of a Trump presidency in the context of what we're talking about today is uh, we ain't seen nothing yet in terms of an arms race because, you know, the... With, if, it's, if it were to come to pass uh, that the United States withdraws from the region, dismantles alliances, uh, you know, goes back into a sort of isolationist mode, um, countries like Japan, South Korea, Australia, the Philippines, even non-allied countries like Vietnam and others, yeah. are going to have to rely upon themselves a great deal more uh, to try and make sure that they are defending their interests vis-a-vis uh, -vis China in particular. And that's going to mean an arms race. That's going to be a very serious uh, uh, change, I would think, in the way that countries think about arming themselves. Sure. No, I definitely agree with Bates because um, it is very sad that um, Trump is the Republican candidate because during Republican presidencies is usually the height of Asia-America relations. I mean, George, everyone criticizes George Bush Jr., but under his... Um, uh, administration, that was the peak of US-Southeast Asian relations. Um, and Why you know, is that, just out of interest? Is it just a coincidence or is there something about no, Republican he, understanding which leads it to look... There is a Republican understanding of the importance of Asia, particularly for economic interests, because if you look at the Asia-Pacific, um, a third of the world's shipping goes through there. Um, Asia is the largest importer and exporter with America. There is, it, is, it is critical to American economic success that it has links with Asia, not just um, security ones, but economic ones. And that military presence is, is a subtle part of that, that um, in terms of sustaining cooperation, in terms of building trust and um, confidence building. Um, 
And the sad thing is that because of the instability of the American political system, of what um, Asian states perceive as instability, even though it's just a normal democratic process, that has led them to do this double um, kind of uh, strategy of relying on themselves as well as trying to keep the US engaged, which actually has made the region more contested and more um, uh, suspicious of each other. Because they're saying, well, that kind of new submarine that Japan is putting out, they're putting out almost one per year, um, which is quite remarkable. Um, they're saying, oh, that's not just for the US. They're actually mm. doing more for themselves than for the US alliance. Particularly if the US does withdraw. I mean, they've, yeah. they've got their self-defence cards mm. well and truly stacked. Yeah. So mm. it is, I mean, and even if you look at South Korea, what they do is even more alarming. And I think South Korea is actually the really... Um, poor country here because not only do they have to deal with North Korea, they have um, Japan they're worried about as well. Um, they have um, so they're a very contested land border as well as a maritime border. Um, so do you think greater independence or...? Well, I've asked this question of Japanese and Korean interlocutors in recent times. Um, their response is, is, is the same. Uh, if we don't have the assurance of a dependable US alliance, then we're going to have to do two main things. One, a lot more of our own, on our, on our own, as Bates said. Japan's already well down that mm. uh, track. The point you make about their submarine production is, is one part of it. But the big picture is uh, the Abe government has just, uh, through a cabinet decision, decided to reinterpret its constitution. This is the, the, se the self-defence provisions. Mm. Yes. Because they were going to try and amend it, but they've decided to do it just as a matter of administration. Well, am amendment of the constitution was going to be too difficult politically. Right. Um, so the, the, they did it through cabinet, a cabinet decision mm. to reinterpret Japan's mm. post-war constitution to allow it to operate with other countries in, warf in warfare. This is... This is threshold stuff. In fact, almost everything we are talking about today is threshold stuff because this is, the t this is all happening. Uh, and this, I guess it's the reason we have this session. And what have the Chinese said in relation to that cabinet decision? Oh, the Chinese, of course, uh, have said that the uh, Japanese are warmongers uh, who are looking to, to crush and contain the legitimate aspirations of China. Um, the Japanese... Apoplectic would be a good way of it. Yeah. The Japanese, of course, say, well, actually, no, this is our response to your constant provocations in the East China Sea. Mm. But the, the, the point is that um, the, the Japanese have already started to realise they're going to have to do more for themselves, and mm. they are. The South Koreans are not quite there, but they're getting there. Um, and the other thing, the second theme... So first, more self-reliance, more self Just on the Japanese, I don't think people realise how large a military they have under their... What's well, the third biggest navy Exactly. It's in a the world. It is a massive force, really. Mm. Yeah. J Japan is, uh, because of their peace constitution, because they don't call them an army, air force and navy, they call it self-defence forces, yeah. because they spend relatively small amounts, uh, less than 2% of GDP, on their military. It's assumed that Japan is a small, uh, feeble sort of capability. In fact, it, because it's been spending a little less than 2% of GDP, but consistently for decades, and it's a big GDP to start with, uh, means that they, Japan has a very serious capability, plus the benefit of US technology and combat systems. So, so just to finish on that briefly, the second thing is to, do, to each country has decided they have to work more with other uh, like-minded countries in the region. So for, Australia, for, so for Korea, that means uh, talking more to, you know, heaven forbid, Japan. I was going to say. And yeah. for Japan, heaven forbid, talking more to Korea mm. uh, and, and to Australia and to India. So these are the sort of like-minded, as they call themselves, uh, that if there's a Trump or even a, just a general sense of a less reliable US, these are, are the fallback positions that countries well, are now talking about. A weak Clinton. Uh, does anybody want to ask a question um, here from within the audience? If you do, can you just pop up. There's microphones on either side. You can see they've been illuminated now. Um, if you could just wander around, that's a bit of a hike for some of you in the middle. Um, uh, go now. Yes, I should have said this two minutes ago. You would have been there just on time. Um, we might start with the microphone too. Thank you. Um, just wondering, how do you think that China would actually perceive the US if it was to abandon its sort of treaty obligations with South Korea and with Japan? Would, the, would it be appeasement or...? What do you think it would be? Right. <laughs> well, I, I want to preface all this by saying that even if Donald Trump were to become president, I, I, like everything else he's said and done so far, he will 
eventually come to find a way to, to pretend he'd never said it. So, so I'm not really too worried about this, but just, in, in, in just because it's an interesting hypothetical, um, it would be viewed with delight. I mean, it would be a fantastic opportunity for Beijing to, uh, I think, thinking the way they would think, to reclaim, in a sense, or um, re-achieve its traditionally powerful role as the most important power in Asia. Um, and in many respects, that's already true on mainland uh, Asia. I don't think anyone in their right mind wishes to challenge China and its dominance militarily, politically, economically on mainland Asia. What's contested is maritime uh, Asia, around China's periphery. Um, and were the United States to withdraw, I think it would open the door for a fantastic opportunity for China to further extend its, its influence. You know, it would, it, would, it would mean finally really taking over Taiwan. It would mean finally really achieving full uh, dominance and hegemony over the Korean Peninsula. And it would mean pushing Japan even farther back on its back, on its back heel. Anyway, it would be a great opportunity for China with that to happen. Oh, I'll go to the next question. If you want to jump in on it later, though, do it, because we've got four people up there. Yeah, number uh, one. Firstly, thanks, everyone, for a fascinating and uh, perhaps quite disturbing uh, session. A um, <laughs> couple of quick ones. Um, drones. So we've talked submarines and aircraft capabilities. Um, drone technology, do we know how much investment's being made in, in that in Asia? And then secondly... Um, from a layman's kind of perspective, I don't see many winners from an arms race, but in terms of corporate interest, we've got the US, we've got Europe, we've got many corporate institutions who are perhaps one of the main beneficiaries from an arms race. Just wanted to see your thoughts on that. Throw that to you, Sharon, drones. Um, so there have been quite some investments in unmanned aerial um, vehicles as well as unmanned submersibles. And the real um, danger is the unmanned submersibles in terms of what you could do with them as well as the accountability for the state. Um, so there's two areas there. Particularly if they're autonomous. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that's actually driven by the US capabilities because um, if you think about um, the US, they have an extremely... Um, stagnant economy at the time, so they're trying to think about how do we make more cost-effective and efficient weapons, and the unmanned submersibles is one part of it. Um, the second part of the question in terms of the defence industry, I think this is actually an over-exaggerated influence on modernisation because you then ignore the checks and balances within a political system that keeps a hold of these defence industries in terms of what kind of contracts they can get. And yes, they do profit, and yes, they do um, drive um, lots of countries and lots of different interest groups to buy certain weapons, but there is a lot of political checks on that. Christopher Pine, for example. <laughs> Is Minister for Defence Industry, he'll keep a close eye on them. <laughs> Just on the autonomous weapon systems, about four years ago, the Russians crossed a line that everybody had agreed and they deployed fully autonomous, lethally armed weapon systems to guard some of their missile sites, which means that they now have a system where no human being needs to be involved in the command decision as to whether lethal force is used or not. And this has caused a lot of concern, as one might imagine. Uh, microphone two. Uh, good morning. Um, so my question is, it seems to me that at least part of the reassertiveness of China is due to its underrepresentation in the global political system. Um, and to some extent, um, I think it's absolutely necessary that China and the rising powers are accommodated. Um, but where do we draw the line in order to protect the system that so far seems to be in our interests? Peter? Well, you're absolutely right. Um, one of the reasons that uh, China... Uh, feels vindicated and uh, I think rightly in asserting itself is because um, because the the world has refused to acknowledge existing systems have refused to acknowledge China uh, and its entitlements and those of other rising great powers um, the for example uh, there was uh, gen uh, there was consensus that the IMF and World Bank governance had to be reshaped to allow China and other rising nations a larger share of the vote. China's share of the vote at the, at the moment is smaller than Belgium's. Um, and that was a, a direct result of the Bretton Woods system in the mm. 40s. Uh, now, the US Congress refused to... The administration agreed, but the US Congress refused to allow that to happen. Um, uh, we, and there are other, uh, other arrangements too. I mean, the hypocrisy... China points to hypocrisy of the US. And, the, for example, the ruling against China in The Hague 
over the South China Sea. The Americans say, uh, the Chinese say, well, we'll recognise the uh, uh, United Nations law of the sea the moment the Americans do. The Americans have never ratified the UN law of the sea. So the Chinese sense of grievance on some of this stuff is well-founded. Your point, though, is what's the threshold? At what point do we say, well, the Chinese have now uh, recovered their rightful place and now they're overstepping the mark and they're actually trying to uh, encroach on the freedoms uh, and the, 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 the realistic uh, responsibilities and freedoms of other countries. Uh, if you look at the reactions of governments around the region, we've now reached that point. Uh, country after country uh, have, have gone from having uh, perfectly amicable, friendly relations with China to having very tense and difficult ones because of Chinese intrusion. So China is on the other side of every, dis every one of these new territorial disputes uh, in the region, whether it's Indonesia, Japan, whether it's Vietnam, Philippines, very different countries, all now in tense situations with, with China. Um, when when the, the Chinese president says, we, are, we, are, we may have built these islands, but we're not going to militarise them, and then within months, missile batteries turn up on the islands. Uh, within months, uh, enormous reinforced hangars that are capable of carrying, of housing the biggest Chinese bomber, fire, bomber, bomber jets start to appear. Uh, when military radars and all of, of these other uh, capabilities start to appear on the islands. Uh, the, the region is coming to the conclusion that the Chinese cannot be trusted in their pronouncements. Uh, cannot be trusted in their negotiations and cannot be trusted in their strategic intent. What's been fascinating, if you go to regional gatherings over the last 10 years, the Chinese, when they would come along, for the first five years at least, were generally and genuinely welcomed. They enjoyed being liked, they would smile. And then the moment they started to do these things and the people, particularly in this region, changed their tone, they have been furious. They are really, really angry. They sit there stony-faced, annoyed and slapping people down. And it's, uh, it's the interpersonal dynamics which are so interesting in this as well. Microphone one. We probably uh, may only have time for this, maybe the last. We'll see how we go. Uh, thanks to the panel. Um, Bates, before you mentioned the potential stabilising effect of um, a nuclear-armed and capable North Korea. And Peter, before you were giving us a nice summary of the um, loosening restrictions upon the Japanese in terms of constitutional revision. Um, I'm just wondering... Given that Abe has just recently won significant majorities in both houses um, in Japan, um, and given the potential decline in the reliability of the US alliance, um, do you see a potentially strategically normal Japan as a stabilising or destabilising influence on Northeast Asia in the future? And do you, are you including a nuclear arms strategically normal Japan, or? Who's to say? Okay. Abe, Abe is on record um, having said he would generally consider nuclear arming. Okay, who wants to go on that, Bates? Or? Well, in the, in the absence, again, of, of a reliable US presence or even a deterrent uh, in the region, let, let's put that out there as a hypothetical, um, then I would have to say that a stronger Japan would make a lot of sense in terms of creating the, the proper uh, balance of, of power in the region. Um, the problem, though, there is that you know, there's going to be this period then of, of great uncertainty, uh, on, certainly on the part of China, um, as to just how far then Japan intends to go. That scenario you just painted is very much like what we're looking at with regard to China today, hmm. um, because you know, th that will really change the strategic circumstances of the region if Japan seriously rearms in the absence of the United States. And yeah. Uh, that'll be very, very problematic and an unstable period. But I think it'll, it'll inevitably, it, it would happen. Japan would have to, would have to take those steps. Um, you're right. The new election has opened up the possibility that Japan could, Abe is now thinking apparently, according to the reporting out of Tokyo, of a formal uh, redefinition of the constitution. Australia under Abbott and continuing under Turnbull have committed to 2% of GDP allocated to defence spending. In this unstable world, is that enough? Or should we be doing more, given what's been described today? Well, the spending should match the need. At the moment, the spending this calendar year is going to come in at about 1.9% of GDP. The question is, what's the need? Uh, should Australia... What are our options? Does Australia declare itself neutral and opt out? 
um, does Australia uh, reinforce, seek to reinforce the US alliance, even if it's a diminishing one? What, what, what are Australia's options? Mm. Uh, the current thinking, the current uh, position, the current policy is first assume no change to the US alliance. Poten potentially uh, that could have a short life. Um, to increase Australian dependence and reliance on the US, uh, to complicate any Chinese strategic calculation against Australia by uh, increasing the defence budget, acquiring the 12 submarines and the other kit that goes with it. Um, the, the, the kit spending, the, the, the current policies are all funded, can all be done within the 2% of GDP, but we're about to see again, we're about to see year after year where uh, the budget slips beyond control. We have to leave it, yeah. And, go, and, and what will governments do about the defence budget? Sorry, I won't be able to get to the people and the questions. Um, sorry, Bates and Sharon and Peter may be around later and wandering around and grab them there, but we're out of time. Um, so I think you can see why this is a dangerous idea about what's happening. Uh, and for helping us to unpack it, please thank Bates Gill, Peter Hartress and Sharon Lee. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Sharon. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.